I'm Lucy Vincent, and for the past four years, my life has been consumed by prison food. Although you probably know that by now. In 2016, I founded Food Behind Bars. We've become the UK's only charity dedicated to transforming the food served in British prisons. This week, something a little different. We're getting straight into a conversation I had with Joshna Maharaj, a chef, TEDx speaker and activist based in Canada. Joshna has become an international voice for institutional food that is wholesome, sustainable and delicious. She is a true advocate for what Joshna calls social gastronomy, a term I'm definitely going to steal. We live with the privilege of universal health care, but some parts of this system do not work. We boast about our innovative and uncompromising medical care system, but we have completely dismissed the importance of wholesome, nutritious food in this effort. I came across Joshna at Christmas. I was actually given her book as a present, and she wrote a book called Take Back the Tray that was released in 2020. The book has been described as kind of part manifesto, part account from the trenches. And that's because Joshna has been working with institutions around food for over 14 years. She has transformed the food served in community kitchens, hospitals and universities across Canada. Joshna knows the challenges that these kitchens face and over the years she's learned that they can be overcome with a little bit of vision and creativity and a lot of hard work. And I read Joshna's book and it was the first book that really spoke to me about a subject that I'd also been tirelessly campaigning for for years. And I think my main takeaway was that despite the fact that Joshna was working in a different country, a different continent, a different institution, she was experiencing a lot of the same things that I had experienced. And suddenly the issue becomes a far greater one. You know, she had experience of working in, with catering managers in hospitals and with outdated suppliers and small budgets, um, mass catering, convenience foods, all of those things that we've spoken about in prisons, she has experience of as well. So I had to message her, um, firstly, just to tell her how much I enjoyed reading her book, but secondly, because I wanted to speak to her and find out more and also, I guess, bond over this kind of shared passion that we have. Where does she, where is she drawn to? Yeah, 9, 9 a.m. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Hello, how are you? Sorry, you just, I ju you just came into my, um, I'm sitting in the studio with some headphones on. Awesome. <laughs> um, oh, so I just popped into your ears, amazing. Okay. You just popped into my ears, yeah, but it's perfect, I can hear you great. Um, I'm good, how are you? I'm really well, thanks. It's a nice, uh, nice, easy Friday morning over here. Oh, and what's the weather like? Because in London, it's, I mean, I know you guys are probably used to freezing, freezing, but we're not, and it's yeah, so cold. it's good and cold. It's good and cold here. I think we're, like, we're, it's especially cold, like minus double digits. <gasps> um, and it's, but it, there's also like a beautiful little bit of snow falling. Um, well, look, thank you so much for chatting. Um, You're so welcome. I'm actually uh, really excited to talk yeah. to you because... Um... I am also, I <laughs> I got given your book for Christmas and um, oh. yeah, I know. And it was a good, good institutional theme, food themed present for me. It was kind of perfect actually. Cool, cool. Okay. Um, and I finished it. Um, yeah, so I absolutely loved it. I can't wait to talk to you about it. But to give you a little bit of background, um, obviously I run an organization here in the UK called Food Behind Bars. Um, oh. And we became a charity last year, but actually a little bit like yourself really, I, I kind of, um, I used to work in restaurants and, and I'm, I'm not right. I'm not a chef, but I'm a cook, I suppose. And so mm -hmm. I used to be a journalist and I, I kind of came into the subject from a kind of campaigning activist side of things. So Ooh. I started okay. a, a campaign to improve prison food in the UK. And then over the years, it's, it's kind of just grown really organically, basically. I've spent a lot of time in prisons um, all around the country, really, and set up a charity, you know, us as an organisation as a result of that. And I felt a real demand, actually, um, because no one was really doing anything around prison no, food in this country. it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, was, not... it's, it was sort of um, hollow, like the echo of the emptiness was really noticeable, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and actually, that was why I started, because I was like, no one's talking about this. And, and you know, we, we've had in this country, you know, school food has had um, sure. yep. huge campaigns. You know, Jamie Oliver, um, 
you know, to name one. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was a big inspiration to me, actually, because, and I think your book illustrates this quite, me too. quite me well. Too. Yeah, it's that actually you look at all these institutions and the same problems are coming up. You know, it's um, yep. a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I loved your book. And I felt as though, a bit like Jamie Oliver, actually, back then, it was the first piece of writing I'd kind of read about institutional food that really spoke to me because often it's quite academic. I don't know if you found that yes, before. Yes, 100%. And that is precisely the place that I decided to write this book from. I was very particular about the fact that I did not want this to sound like a piece of policy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I was like, this book, and and it was, it's been a challenge, right? Because my publisher has always, even just from the necessity of figuring out where to categorize the thing for the book number kind of, you know what I mean? Like that basic, like, where does this live? Because my answer is this book is for everybody. It speaks to everybody, mm. uh, but nobody in the business office likes the sound of that, right? And they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. It, it has to be, and I'm like, so, I mean, uh, I we I said to them, I'm like, look, wherever Michael Pollan's books are, that's where this book is. <laughs> <laughs> However he defines himself, I wanna be right beside. So yeah. just follow him and we're okay. Well, I think, it, I think it's good. I, I feel like it's a real call to arms. And I think, again, you know, I'm sure you can sympathize with this, but I'm trying to get people to understand that prison food and institutional food is, it's all of our problems, you know, it's our taxpayer money, yes. it's whatever. So I think the Ugh. more that we make this stuff available to everyone and get the message out, you know, the better, I, I guess. That's what I was thinking, right? That's really my thought. I was like, I don't know that people really understand, A, what's actually happening, and two, what it could look like, mm, right? If we mm. shift our values, you know, you've seen, right? What happens when you put the good food vibe back into a place? Yeah. Right? You see, even just the photos that I've seen on your website of the hands and the produce on cutting boards, <laughs> right? I'm like, this is a big deal. Yeah. Do you want to um, tell me a bit about, I guess, your background as a chef and, and what brought you to the subject of, of food and institution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right out of the gates, for me in chef school the like the restaurant game was not interesting mm. uh and when i was in cooking school i was like oh, i don't know man I, this i don't i can't see myself jumping in for a lifetime of this oh you know mm. um and my like my call to the kitchen was really from a much more like grassrootsy place uh right it wasn't about banging pots and pans and crisp white jackets and you know that sort of thing uh, and so I tried to really kind of find what I wanted uh, to do. And the idea of community food security popped up and the chance to work in that kitchen at the stop was the, th- and I was like, ah, this makes much more sense. Mm. Uh, this fits. Uh, plus I was really, really interested in the, uh, in the sort of experiment of what happens when you put a chef in a place like this, right? If the goal actually is, uh, to to improve the food circumstances, both in the output of the kitchen and what people are, you know what I mean, how people are engaging with food, um, then who's going to do that for you? And and it just it it sort of surprised me that we that the connection between chefs and these kinds of spaces were never together, right? And and I mean I th- I'm sure we can find a list of things to explain why that is, but I was like, what happened? What would happen if we just did this mm. and we tried? Right. Because the thing is, right, and I'm sure you see this is in in an institution, in any big space like this, uh, who cares enough about food to jump through all the hoops and do all the things that need to be done so that it gets done well. Uh, Chefs are the people. Chefs are the only people who, you know, or cooks. I shouldn't just say chefs. Cooks uh, (laughs) across the land care about this. Right. Um, and that, to me, that got really, really exciting. And so the chance to actually work with the hospital kind of arrived serendipitously in my lap, but I jumped at it because mm. it just, it makes so much sense. One, I was very curious, right? I was like, let me in there. I want to see what's happening. Um, but I was, uh, but it like my lens and I've seen, right? The fact that my eyes are the ones that holds the best possible plate of food at the top priority. Uh, uh, forces me to make different choices and different decisions than other people in the in the same scenario would, right? I sort of laughed, uh, right? My publisher was like, you just have all these one-liners. I'm like, but it's the truth because it literally was the first time because I was in these discussions, the first time the food in the story got a seat at the table. 
that anybody listened and thought about it. Cause I was like, no, we can't do that because then that's going to take 10 minutes out of their lunch. And then they're not going to be able to sit down and eat this food and that's going to have an impact. I'm interested in, um, you started working for a community food center. So you mentioned it there called the stop. Do you want to tell me about how that came about and, and what you, I guess your aims whilst you were there and some of the challenges and what you achieved? Yes. That job came about accidentally, actually. I was working in a, in a little food studio doing the morning cafe prep shift and like we ran cooking classes, all that kind of stuff. First job as a chef ever. But then I met the folks at the stop. We did a fundraiser for them and they uh, needed to hire a cook and they wanted my help with the hiring, if you can imagine. Hmm. They knew, they understood how to hire for like the social context and that sort of thing, but they didn't know how to assess somebody's culinary skills. And so they asked for my help on the hiring committee and we interviewed a few people, but nobody had the right combination of things. One thing led to the next and the executive director was like, well, why don't you apply for the job? Uh, and I had to stop and think. And the truth was at that point, it was actually one of the most secure kitchen jobs that existed. It was a permanent salary with vacation, you know, mm. uh, and, uh, and paid sickly. Like it was a proper good job mm. in a kitchen. Uh, so I jumped at it, um, but I will, like, it's important to note that I really, it was a bit of a crossroads moment for me because there was no, like, there was no necessary, there's no culinary fame down this road, right? Yeah. Or or so I thought, let's just say that. I have perhaps a different story to tell 15 years later, but <laughs> uh, at the time, there was none, right? And I was like, huh, okay, is this, am I, you know, am I closing the door too soon? What is, what, you know, is this a problem? So I didn't know the answer to that, but I knew that this job was a good idea for a number of reasons. So I made this promise to myself that just because people didn't pay for the food that I was cooking did not mean that my kitchen was not going to run like any other proper professional kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I really tried to push the notion that what happens in a kitchen and the way a kitchen runs does not have to be anchored in the fact that there's a financial transaction underpinning it all, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, right there, there can be a sort of separate notion of integrity of how a kitchen should run. Or at least I was gonna see if I could, you know, see if I could try to figure that out. And how did that uh, kind of manifest? I guess like what changes did you make? What did you introduce? Uh, well, the biggest bit, the biggest bit was organization and structure and policy and process and just like the way things get handled. Um, you know, uh, also it was the kind of food that we served. It was very like we made decisions about um as full being as wholesome as it could possibly be uh and there were there was like very clear sort of rules about how you behave in the kitchen and what you do and everyone was welcome in there but there was like it was like there was like a culture of the kitchen that was that had some uh welcome but as well like a bit of a standard and some expectations mm -hmm. uh that felt really important people right i was like you got to treat this place with a lot of respect um, and this is going to run well and it's going to put, and, and the quality of the food was the best possible version of the thing that we could produce. Mm. I guess also worth noting as well, that a lot of the ingredients that you were using were, were donated as well. Is that, was that the case? Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. That was the case. Uh, but there was always on every plate, there was always some element of the food that had come in as a donation. And our job was to, you know, turn the, do the best thing we could with it. Um, and that was uh, always a challenge, but, uh, but like, uh, it taught me a ton about people and food and eating and how to, <laughs> and how do you, you know what I mean? How to perk something up. Uh, right? even just my slightly, my elevated food skills, just let me do better things with this because I could see, you know what I mean? I could see different end results, yeah. uh, in the pile of ingredients on the table than, than other people might. Uh, and that changed everything. Um, and it, it should be noted. And I really, I really have like, I haven't worked in a prison, but I have a hunch that this would mean something. Um, the people, the community's sense of the fact that there was somebody who really cared about the food at the helm in the kitchen, uh, right? That the, that that and that trend that that transferred out to them. And I really, I hesitate to say this only because there are plenty of cooks and volunteers in community spaces across the planet who, you know, who have the best of intentions and uh, you know to take really good care of their community. So I don't want to big myself up too much uh, because I'm a chef and I'm doing this sort of thing. But there was like an esteem, the idea that there was a chef cooking for them, sort of trans, you know, transformed their sense of themselves, even just for a moment. It was fascinating to watch 
mm-hmm. it mattered to them that I was a chef, you know, and when they all found out that I was actually trained and, you know what I mean, and all this business, they, uh, they were like, oh, really? <laughs> I think I yeah, I think it adds this value and this prestige and 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 yes, to the food yes. that and which which adds to the appeal at the end of the day. You know whether you like it or not, it's kind of a psychological thing. And I think so. Yeah, and we we were actually interviewing um this morning a catering manager from a prison in London that I've worked with before, and and he's incredible. He's he his food actually got rated the best prison food in the country, Joshna. So fantastic. <laughs> but the <gasps> the thing is with him, you know, he would. I'm actually going to send him your book because he. He basically, he just has this level of respect for um, the people who are working in his kitchen. And, and in the UK, prisoners work in, in the kitchens um, yep. and the people he's feeding. So, you know, he, he, he doesn't even call them prisoners. You know, he, he he's cooking like he would for his family, you know, just because. It's wonderful. Yeah. Right? What, what does he call them? What is the name? Well, I mean, he calls his, he actually called his, um, the, the prisoners who work in the kitchen with him today, he called them his army of people, you know, and he makes them awesome. breakfast okay. when they come into the kitchen in the morning. And yeah, it's, and, and he's just created this culture. And I think you're right. It's um, sometimes it's those things which are a little bit harder to define that actually impact the quality of the yes. food. Yeah. Um, yes, I agree. You, I agree. You spoke about you've got these kind of two core food values that guide you as a chef, which are yes. sustainability and hospitality. For sure. Uh, I'll start with the hospitality piece uh, and um, the hospitality in a very, very basic sense, the way I understand it is the relationship between guest and host. Um, and that is like, that's really simple, nice, sort of easy thought. But I, in, in the context of our industry, right, because it's the idea of our home and, and it's, it's like, it's the guiding principle. It's the one thing front of house, back of house, however it is, ideally anyhow, right? I understand people will do what they'll do, but it is sort of the, the one guiding principle. And what became abundantly clear to me when I started working in institutions was that that was the thing that had been removed, right? And like the, our, the, our, the hilarious and ironic language play around the, the, the name, the word hospital and the idea that it's the, the very hospitality that is absent from the current state of you know care in the in the hospital is very laughable and interesting, but I, I realize I'm like hospitality. But what is it? Because what we know is that it's it's the labor, it's the human power that has been eliminated. That has been the stuff that budget cuts have deemed too expensive and not worth investing in, right? So really, and I was like, okay, so the budgets have decided that hospitality is people are not worth investing in. Essentially, people cost too much money, uh, right? And I was like, that's the problem. <laughs> that the value and the attitude is that. And so uh, it became so clear to me that like what we need to do, and, and, and I understood that as a cook and as a chef, I was like, I understand that the hospitality is not there. And so, and I can do that. I can bring this back. Um, and it really, it just fits really beautifully with my the ethos that I already have. And it just really uh, think of extending the like the umbrella of hospitality to make sure that institutional food spaces are part of that and that that's not just some sort of exclusive restaurant thing uh, right so that the hospitality piece that's just a really important bit and I, I it just fits really nicely the sustainability piece uh, is another like that's just something that has emerged recently all, like perhaps most notably with the emergence of climate change and the fact that our industry is such a huge contributor to uh, greenhouse gas emission and all, like the, the writing is on the wall, right? We don't need to break this down anymore. Mm. And I believe firmly that any cook, any chef who does not have sustain, like real sustainability values built into how they operate is living in some sort of unsustainable dream world in how we source our food and you know and how the water drains out uh from the dishwasher mm-hmm. uh all of these things are things that we need to think about um and that is really um and and i and i realized that those are the two things like we can put uh, culinary skill and craft and all of that under the umbrella of hospitality but essentially these are the two things we need to pay attention to and when i really zoomed out because i am a very zoom out sort of thinker mm-hmm. i realized that it was it was it was about our relationship with people and each other and our relationship with the planet yeah definitely right? i was like oh, that's so nice and tidy <laughs> uh, but that really is it right that's really it and i'm like that makes perfect sense mm. and if if we hold these two things up at the top we'll be okay right that is how those are great directional pointers for our feet how we all get there is going to be really different depending on who we are and where we are and all that sort of thing but 
in our new our new framing, right? And particularly in this pandemic era of our uh, lives, where we're thinking a lot about new framing. I really want to push these two ideas forward uh, as the things that we really need to start paying attention, that we really need to use uh, as guidance for mm, this. Mm. So you started working in hospital. What premise were you brought in under? And what what was the state of the food when you got there? Okay, so the state of the food was, um, so it, it, it here in Toronto, in Ontario, is the province that we're in, right? We have had we had a history of a conservative government uh, thirty years ago in the nineties who did a major slash and burn of healthcare and education budgets. Right. And because this is the Joshua hypothesis, right, but because mm. food is such a collective low priority, it's always on the chopping block to be shaved down somehow, you know. Uh, so part of what happened was that the, the budgets for food services in institutions were pretty much destroyed. And so uh, but different institutions decided to decided what they wanted to hold on to. Some of them just surrendered their service completely and did retherm hot box kind of situation, whereas others, like the hospital I was in, kept some sort of skeleton of human staff there and dealt with a very processed ingredients. So there was minimal amount of work for the humans to do to put this together. So that was the state of affairs. There were humans there, but there was one person um, in charge of making hot meals for 324 patients. Wow. So you can imagine what the labor requirement was. It was largely cut things open and put them in a steam kettle, right? That was pretty much it. Mm. Uh, and re and really, like, you couldn't have found a more committed, loving person to do that job. Deb was incredible. but And she maxed out what she could do with what mm. she was given to work with. But it was still steam reheated, all cooked. And because... Right, like uh, little simple things, like they don't they don't want to have to deal with the public health kind of food standard of dealing with raw chicken on a on a counter and the and the server the worker who has to deal with the proper handling of the chicken. So they just buy already cooked chicken, yeah. and to them that feels like a really tidy, efficient, smart solution. Right, where I, where I just like I'm like hey, you look at the box of this defeated, sad chicken with grill marks that have been weirdly kind of I don't know, painted on top. Like it's you know what I mean? It's terrible, frightful food. Um, but that was how it was happening, and it would all she would always invariably always finish with a cornstarch slurry oh. uh, to attempt to put some structure back into the food. Right, this mm. poor dead sad food. Uh, so this is this was the vibe. Like the food was fine right passable with what they could with what they had there perfectly great and the people were very kind and generous and there it was um so the thing is they actually they got themselves some grant funding um and their the hospital's focus was about improving the patient experience and smartly the vp who was in charge of it understood that food was part of that mm. so that they went and found some money and the, the grant funding um uh was under was a provincial funding umbrella that was money to put more local food more ontario grown food onto plates in public institutions mm. so we had this patient experience desire and then we had this local food funding stream that came together mm. right and then i was in the middle of that that landed at me with the like, what do you think we can do? Uh, and so I jumped in and the thing is, I realized that if I had a hospital who was ready to talk about it and we had money to actually figure it out from a local food perspective, uh, I, I was, I like wedged my foot in the door and I said, great, if we're gonna do this, then we're also gonna talk about wholesome cooking and uh, cultural diversity and just maybe lifting the status of this thing to mm. all together. You know what I mean? Like, if we're going to do this, let's do this. Um, and so that was how it all rolled out. Now, I will say one of the gifts of the situation was that because our local food processing facility was not a thing, it didn't exist, um, prioritizing local food automatically meant that we had to think about scratch cooking because somebody had to start peeling onions and, and potatoes and things like that. Mm. So I guess uh, right? you, you had a, a huge yeah. job from going from one person sticking stuff in an oven to to changing yes, to yes, scratch-made cooking with local yes. ingredients. How did you, where Definitely. did you even start? 
Definitely. Uh, it was huge. Uh, and it helped a lot that I had two allies in the hospital who were ready to try, right? They themselves came from strong family cooking traditions and they understood uh, that scratch made food was the way to go. Plus, well, the director of nutrition had been there for 25 years and she remembered what things used to be like, right? Mm -hmm. And how they used to do like that, that the legacy and the history was already there. And they all, we all knew that we were making, taking a big bite um, but, but thankfully I was with people who understood that if this was to change at all, somebody was going to have to do this. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then what did you do? You speak a lot in your book about ingredients and supply chains and how, yeah. what, what changes did you make? Well, we, um, I knew just from my other kind of food values thinking that narrowing the, narrowing the, the, the distance from producer to consumer was the more sustainable option for our food system, right? And the, these many, many chains over lots of distance is contributing to the problems that we're sort of facing right now. Uh, and so I wanted to take those values into the institution and I had no idea what I was trying to do, right? I will honestly tell you, I cannot at all <laughs> paint this as though I was some sort of visionary that burrowed my way through. Uh, that's absolutely not the truth. That makes me I feel just, better about, about my job. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. It was just like, I like, I remember one day I was like, I would like to just put some roasted potatoes on this tray. Uh, right. And I was like, okay. Uh, but then I, there's no petty, there's no petty cash. There's no, you can't get money out of a hospital to buy some potatoes. So I went and I just bought the potatoes myself. <laughs> uh, and I brought them in and I peeled them. Uh, and then like, there was no bin to put the potato peels in. Uh, and then the facilities guy was like, what do you mean? I never, he never has to put the organics bin up. There's no spot in the back in the, you know, the, the loading dock where the guard, where the trucks come. And I was like, oh my God, I just, and, and then getting the reimbursement for the $8 worth of potatoes that I had bought. And I was like, what do I think I'm going to do here? This is, and I want them to now start buying bushels of dreamy carrots from a farmer. Like, this is insane, <laughs> uh, right? The distance to cover. I was like, what on earth are you trying to do? Um, but, uh, but I chipped, like we chipped away at it. And I thought to myself, I was like, look, nobody knows how to do this. And we all sit paralyzed in our ignorance um, and nothing will change and the planet will burn up and you know what I mean? And people will continue to be disrespected with these terrible plates uh, and we're, we're not going to be any better off. So I thought at the very least, if I give this a go and if I fail miserably, then we'll know that the beast is too big to be tackled. Mm, you know, mm. uh, we can, the, the, we can, it's unwieldy. Um, and so I, ha I was like, there's no reason to not just take a deep breath and keep pushing. Yeah. Right. Definitely. And have a sense of humor about it, but be like, oh, okay. You want me to fill in these six more forms? Uh, okay. Five. Great. What do we need to do? Who do I need? I need to talk to this person in this other building over. Okay. Fine. <laughs> right. Uh, and I would just like, I would just document it all because in my sort of, in the report, the funding report that I have to submit afterwards, I'd be like the, the, the unknown piece, the piece that's not articulated in the, in the grant is just like, the endurance required to deal with the institution, you know? Mm, mm. Did you ever feel like giving up? All the time, <laughs> all the time. And I've had people like my mother be like, what is it? And like, what, is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you really? Um, and I remember saying to her, I was like, ah, no, this is, what am I trying to do here? Mm, mm. You know, when do I know that enough is enough? Um, and, uh, and, but always somehow it just seemed to be the, you know, I was like, ah, but, my, my, my sweet community and my pals would always tell me, they're like, listen, you're the only one who's pushed this even a little bit further. Yeah, definitely. I think one I, thing um, I really resonated yeah. with in, in your book is, so one, one problem I have, it's not a problem, but, you know, I've had, I guess when I first started, I, I had some hostility from, from catering teams that I met in prison because, sure. you know, the minute you start saying... Um, that the quality should be improved, then you're kind of automatically implying that it wasn't good enough to begin yes, with. Yes, and absolutely. it's <laughs> it's been a really, yes. you know, we've got ourselves in a place now where actually, you know, people know we're coming from a, a good source of intention. Um, and also yes. as well, sometimes I find that the best catering managers are the first to admit that they could do more, I suppose. So, but it's always a fine line. And, and, and you, you had an instance in your, 
in your time at the hospital, I think you um, you're yes. on TV or something, and and the staff. Do, do you want to explain it to me? Yeah, of course. It was a newspaper uh, piece, and uh, it was a, it was in the Globe, so it's a national paper. And they uh, came and they did this wonderful, like really major center spread of the Saturday paper kind of uh, bit on the on the project and the idea of improving hospital food in the first place, right? Um, and they centered me locally, you know what I mean, centrally in the story as the person in there to sort this all out. Uh, what uh, the, I didn't realize so many things about this. Uh, and one was that I didn't clue into the fact that of course the media is not gonna talk about the like amazingly intrepid team of staff who have weathered the storm of budget cuts. They're just gonna, they're just gonna really focus in on how awful the food is. Yeah. Uh, right? They're not gonna talk about people doing the very best they can with what they've been given because that story is much less sexy than, you know, miserable plates. Uh, and the other thing that I did not, re I did not connect to was that that whole team of folks in that kitchen were, were not at all connected to this broader kind of socio-political conversation that we were starting to have about food. They were not, they hadn't read any Michael Pollock books, they hadn't watched food, you know what I mean? They had not, they were not connected at all to what they were actually really a part of in a huge way. Um, and so it was just insulting for them. Uh, to, so the paper came out really talking about, and, and unfortunately, right, the positioning was that I was sort of swooping in to make things better um, mm. and to save the day. And it, I early on got a really important lesson about approaching this in a way that does not even drip of being some sort of savior, you know, coming in to fix problems and right or wrong. Yep. Right? I, I really learned that I needed, I needed just a new attitude right from the beginning. My heart and my mind might be like, oh my God, look at all this shit. This is this is crazy. Mm. We got to you know, but I, I was like, I can't outwardly say that. What I outwardly need to say is uh, I'm really interested in finding new ways to do this. Yeah. I think as well, it's like, you know, collaborating. It's something I talk about a lot, you know, and I, yes. I, I learn a lot from the people that I meet in the kitchen who've been doing it for years. I've probably learned yes. the most from those people. And, you know, if I can bring something else in, but ultimately it's, it's about merging the two minds, isn't it? Um, I agree. Yeah. It's about both. And how did you overcome that with your, your colleagues? I, uh, it was very hard. I, uh, because I had to win their hearts back, right? Their hearts were, uh, their feelings were hurt, right? That was the heaviest piece. And I was like, oh man, I had just done the, like, I just made it past the new girl uh, bit, yeah. right? Because they are a very tight community of people. So I just made it through there. And then this happened and I realized I was like, oh, they're, they're like, this is, there's hurt involved here now. And so, um, so the, the best thing that I could think of was, um, to, uh, to, to own it and accept it and not fight it for the first piece. You know what I mean? To realize that even though I didn't intend this, I am responsible for this. This mm -hmm. is part of, you know, this is my thing to sort out. And I, um, I really wanted them to get a sense of the bigger picture of what we were trying to do here and that, the, and, and that this wasn't just about me and some sort of vanity project, mm. uh, right? I wanted them to get, you know, a sense of the system change that we were trying to make. And so I sent this like really pleading email to my entire food community, all of the people I know, cooks, writers, activists, you know, all the journalists, professors, doctors, everybody. And I said, um, the subject line of the email was, our hospital project needs a cheering section. Uh, and I said, and I explained sort of briefly what had happened and that I needed to sort of boost and build morale and excitement and get these folks who work in this tiled basement situation to, you know, to, to have some connection to the world out there and how other people are, uh, are observing and appreciating and encouraging this project along. And uh, I said, please just send a message, something. Uh, and like, it was this beautiful day and a half of every time I sat back down on my computer and I opened my email, there was like another 20 messages, right? Uh, and my people were so wonderful and they met that call. And so I started literally just like blowing them up, printing them out and posting them on a board, on a pin board in the kitchen. Love I got, I went to like a teacher's store and got their little frilly colored borders. And yes. you know what I mean? To jazz this thing up and really 
make it look exciting. Uh, and then I put, and I just started posting these things with the, with the note about who these folks were, right? And they were beautiful messages written directly to this team. Uh, and so one morning, I, when it was all together, I said, listen, everybody, this is what this is. Uh, please, on those days when you are wishing I would just pack my knives and get out of mm -hmm. here, uh, please just walk by here and stop and let your eyes, you know, land somewhere. And I want you to know that even though this seems like I am just, I've brought pain into your lives because of what I'm asking you to do, this is why. Mm. This is, you know, this is what we're trying to do here. And look at all of these people who are super excited, uh, right? And are ready to support us and, you know, and that sort of thing. And that, uh, and at first they were just super suspicious. And I saw these like furred eyebrows and skepticism as they walked past my board. Uh, but then one day, like a week and something later, one of them came to the little office I was working in and she said that she had read something uh, and that one of them was somebody who she, you know, watched on like local daytime television, uh, right? It was like, they sent a message in, uh, they know what's happening in here, right? And I was like, they do, they do, mm. uh, right? And, and I saw, like, I, I remember sitting at my desk feeling like, oh God, thank God the ice is thawing. <laughs> I think I think you know it's, that, yeah. Like, yeah I think Go it's ahead, that please. because I think uh, I mean from my experience as well and and clearly yours institutions can be quite far removed you know from yes. from normal life and you can't totally. go in you can't go into the kitchen assuming that whoever's in charge of that kitchen is engaging in the same stuff that you are or you know uh, because exactly. they're, you know they're just they're just not and actually you know we can both learn from one another but you know one thing I'm constantly trying to do is is bring in those external influences you know in, yes. into prisons in, you know just to kind of to get people inspired and without pushing it on them um but you know we can't assume that everyone's looking reading watching the same stuff as us because they're not absolutely absolutely and it was i was happy for the lesson it was painful <laughs> but i think it was very i was very important lesson that i need to realize a that i exist in a little bit of a bubble yeah uh, right. And that 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 really that once I can step out uh, and it's a very, very different picture. Yeah. How big a part did did budget play in your work? I mean, it, in, in the UK, for example, you just using prisons, there's a kind of a rough budget of around two pound ten per head per day. That's ah, three meals. That. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, schools and hospitals, it, it varies. But I guess similar as in most countries, you know, it's pretty much a tight budget across the board. So. What experience did you have navigating that and, and what do you believe is possible, I guess, on those tight budgets? Yeah, there's a couple of things to say. So for hospital patients here, um, I think it has maybe boosted a tiny bit, but in 2011, 2011 is when I started, it was $7.86 uh, for ingredient for food ingredients for three meals a day. Uh, three meals and a snack, really. Um, and so that was hardly anything. It translated to like $2 and something for yeah. each meal, right? Um, and so it was, um, and so of course, the funding that I got was just like, they give you this ridiculous sort of impossible funding stream where they'll like make all these changes, but there's no more money for labor. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then you're like, and you're like, this is ridiculous, right? And what are you asking me to do here? Uh, right. And so I, in the interest of just seeing what was possible, I entertained the idea of not incurring any more costs, right. To see if I could just, you know, more efficiently or, or just bring different ingredients in mm. to, you know, maybe there's a, you know, some where the low hanging fruit on this really was what I was, what I was uh, trying to consider. Um, and so that was the approach that I took to be like, this is what I've got. How can we do the best job of spending this $2.10 that we have for lunch for everybody. Mm. Uh, that was the way I approached it. But then, and then of course, like there's some room to move there, but I realized very clearly that I can't, I did not want to spend too much time there because that just did not address the bigger issue, which was why the hell is this budget so small? Yeah. yeah. Right. And I didn't want to let people off the hook really. Mm. Uh, right to suggest uh, because in the early stages when people like three months in and stuff they'd be like so you figured it out you figured out how to to save money while making better and I was like please stop this stop asking for this this is so this is a ridiculous non-thing there is no way 
that my good food, wholesome scratch made idea of food is going to cost less than this current machine produced version. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to stop asking for this. This is crazy. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure you have some sense, particularly because we're both in, in publicly funded uh, countries, you know, this way. But the minute you talk about the fact that more money needs to be spent, you see that all the like all the air just leaks out of everybody's head. No. Yeah. Well, I think with prisons as well, it's a particularly hard sell. I mean, at the beginning, yes. you know, whenever I was kind of talking about prison food, it was like, well, this is taxpayer money. And, and I had to keep clarifying. And, and, I, and I do still it's very difficult because most catering managers I meet actually say that, that budget is the biggest barrier, you know, and if we have more money, more be possible because and that's yeah. true. But also, likewise, I think in a lot of instances, much more could be done to really work that money harder, basically. So yes. I've kind of now just got used to saying we're not asking for more money. You know, it's about using that money in a better way. But actually, actually, I think you're right. I think it points to a much bigger problem, which is why, you know, why is there so little funding for this to begin with? That's it. And and there are both the UK and you know, like there are, I've seen so many studies now that really talk about the impact of uh, a deeper, better, more nourishing connection with good food, particularly in the context of rehabilitation. Yeah. Right? It's all, it, the writing is literally on the wall about this now. Uh, but still, we don't, the, it doesn't translate. It doesn't work because the bean counters, uh, right? And, and that's when I, I realized, because I was like, okay, we have all of this academic literature. We have the obvious evidence of these horrible trays. Um, what is happening here? And I was like, okay, the people who are in charge don't care about this enough, mm. right? The people with the power, like I know everyone's like, oh, this is the, the budget. This is all we're given. Fine. But like, but who, like somebody has decided that this is okay. Mm. Somebody has decided that this, that that whatever the spreadsheet says is what we're going to do. Do you think we're getting somewhere in society? I mean, I, I feel as though as the years go by, we, we, we're starting to value food more and more as a society. But also kind of similar to what you said, sometimes that doesn't translate to, you know, the powers that be, you know, the, the, the top people in charge. You know, we might feel yeah. as though in, in society, in our, in our communities, food is now this really important thing. But, yeah. you know, is that a case, the case up top? And actually, you need the people up top to feel the same way. Do you think That's we will exactly get to that point? I do think we are. I'm actually quite hopeful. <laughs> um, even before the pandemic began, I started to see it, right? And because we, we'd start to see sustainability values kind of peak up in the C-suite people, you know, just their, their own kind of personal uh, belief, you know, and their own idea that I would tap into. Uh, nothing formalized. But I feel like that is the the walking before you run on this sort of thing, right? You get you get that in, and then those values can sort of start building this way. Um, but something that has been really fascinating uh, that has shown up recently, particularly because we just we're having such a big conversation about power and how power moves around. But recently, here in this uh, in this series of uh, riots that took over the U.S. Capitol at the mm. beginning of January, right? One of these crazy people uh, claimed uh, that who was arrested and then put in jail because of his attempted insurrection, right? He uh, demanded an organic diet in I jail. I saw that, right? yeah. Uh, of course, of course, that must have come to you. And so the audacity of that is one thing. <sighs> the fact that the judge gave it to him was what blew my mind. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and had it not been, like, I... I just uh, American activists are uh, pretty broken down people right now. You know, they've been working overtime uh, because it was a, it was a perfect kind of moment for every other prisoner to make the exact same demand, particularly all the black ones. Right. Mm. Uh, Right. I'm like, this is so insane that this judge gave him this, Uh, you know, I I couldn't, I was shocked. Because I think if the shoe was on the foot of another, you know, prisoner or someone in that experience, you know, they would not, receive that i guess never never i think that's why movements perhaps being so slow with prison because it's so removed from most people's lives you know we we all know someone who's who's experienced hospital food or you know a patient in hospital got a kid in school etc and you know unfortunately prison is the slowest moving of them all because it's the most uh tucked away i think Um, yes i agree i agree yeah 
um very interesting and and there is in prisons more than in schools and in hospitals there is a huge slice of the population that believes that the shitty food is completely appropriate yeah Yep. Right. They're not connecting to any human rights conversation about this or, you know, or really thinking about what that actually means, you know, in terms of, 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 of what, you know, the purpose of a prison or, you know, or things like that. Some people are super okay with that in a orange is the new black sort of way. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I think, yeah, I've had tons of comments over the years of, you know, and very extreme comments. You know, I've had people who, who said, you know, prisoners shouldn't get fed anything. They should starve. They should be fed dog food. You know, and we, <laughs> we, we have, um, difficulties wow. with the media in the uk joshua and and the way that they paint prisons and unfortunately a lot of okay. a lot of people's views on prisons are are shaped by that really um, right. but most people think that prisoners already get too too good a time of it in prison ah. which is just not the case you know and, and yes. the food certainly not so um yeah it's about i guess it's about educating people and and i suppose you know i always say punishing them further poor quality food is 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 not is going to do all of us harm i think how has the reaction to the book been and what are you what are your next plans it uh reaction to the book has been wonderful um it uh i it released uh in may of last year which was uh difficult Difficult. timing Mm. uh right and i sadly did not get to have the party that i wanted i'm pretty pressed (laughs) the pretty dress waits on the hooks in the closet for the day that we can have the party uh but what I have lost potentially in the hype and the, you know, the media blitz that might have been, uh, uh, I, I have gained in this incredible kind of gift from this pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, 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 this must, I'm sure this exists mostly because a lot of the, the articles that I'm reading are from The Guardian. So I know that this uh-huh. exists over there uh, where you are. But the, the vulnerabilities of the industrial food system have really revealed themselves mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a pretty, like, bright, colorful way. And that has, uh, that has really, it has been amazing to see it, right? I'm somebody who's been kind of hypothetically talking about what might happen when these systems fail, right? Because we talk about sustainability and resilience and that sort of thing. Uh, but to actually, we have had a moment where the systems have failed. Uh, right, things are falling apart in the face of this new kind of dramatic global situation that we're in, and so to be the person who was like, yeah, uh huh, I knew that I kind of knew hmm. this was going to happen, and I have just hot off the presses, I have a plan, right, to deal with both the institutions and the food system. Yeah, uh, right, because those are two things our institutions really have, you know, have really failed us in many, many ways. And it continues as the slow drip of vaccine gets into our arms. Uh, it's not working. Um, and so uh, I have now have, like, I have people are listening in a way that they were not listening before. I agree. Uh, and that is very, very exciting. Um, and so I am working with a couple of institutions now. I've got a seniors independent living facility that I'm helping them sort of overhaul their food service. And then University of Toronto is dealing with uh, some student objection and Hmm. resistance uh, and even a one glorious boycott uh, of a day of food service for in demand of some better. Good for uh, them. I know. (laughs) I know. I was delighted. I was like, I love to see this kind of action right now. You think that young people have been like neutralized a little bit Mm. uh, from that kind of action, but I was super impressed with them. Um, But, uh, and when, and so I was, I was supporting the students uh, around all this just sort of conversationally and 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 that sort of thing and then the administration got a whiff of this and they pulled me in to help them manage their side of the conversation mm, i love that which uh was amazing and i had now i'm now in this scenario where i'm sort of navigating this in-between position to see if i can pull this off mm, mm. right and actually do a good job of supporting both of these populations of people to get to the place where, where I think <laughs> they need to be, right? Yeah. Uh, and that is, that's, it's really exciting. Oh, uh, that's I'm wonderful. Not, I, th- I think the yeah, conversations, I think, yeah, the, the, the conversation around food this year and, and everything, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a big time for opportunity and, and probably quite a good time for your book to come out. So, um, like you said, um, yeah. Thank you. It all happens as it should somehow, right? <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joshna. Um, I loved your book. I'm going to pass it on to thank everyone. And, and I'm going to give it to Felix, who was the catering manager we were this morning. So he's the catering manager at um, 
at Brixton Prison in South London. I'm so uh, excited to have met you, even oh. in its non-face way. Um, <laughs> because when I was reading through your website, just to get you know ready for this mm. conversation, I was like, where is this? Uh, this is exactly... Um, like and to like to find another right there are not many of us who do this uh, to find another who, uh, to somebody who really shares the values the same way I do yeah uh, I was so like I was so great I'm so grateful for you being out there doing your thing oh it's ditto amazing. well I hope we get and to meet one day at some like international institution it'll be amazing travels <laughs> some awesome place like that exactly uh, thank, you. thank you so much yeah have a great All day right. Joshna thanks love you bye. too bye bye-bye Oh my god, so nice. What do you think you imparted to her? <laughs> well, I I hope that in the same way that she made me realise this, I gave her some comfort in that the things that she's experienced and the kind of issues that she's faced around institutional food are universal. Um and there is something fascinating about learning how it's done in other countries and comparing as well. Um, and actually that's really key for my work actually over the years when I've looked at how food is approached in prisons in, in Norway and you know, you look to them and say, well, if it's possible there, why can't it be possible here? Um, the flip side really with Joshna and I is that we were bonding over sh you know, a shared kind of experience of the quality and, and the way that it's cooked. Um, does it fill you with a sort of joy that they, you know, you have people to be in it together with, or does it sort of make the, the challenge a little bit more daunting because you are aware that it's how big of a, yeah. a challenge it in fact is? I think it fills me with hope and and joy, yeah, that, that there are other people doing it, I suppose. The reason I got into prison food originally is because no one else was talking about it and it was unpopular. And I still stand by that. You know, there are certainly not enough people working in this field. And, um, you know, I talk about that we're the only charity in the UK dedicated to transforming prison food. And that's not me bigging that up. Like, that is how it is. I would love it if tons more people were working within this field and we were all collaborating and working towards an end goal. And actually, Joshin is one of the only people I've ever met in the same field who shares that quite ambitious vision. Um, and I keep talking about ambition, but it's something that over the years, particularly when I've I don't know, being in prisons and speaking to people that work in them, you, you, you sometimes try and distill that ambition because it can come across as, as just being so far-fetched and so impossible that they'll look at you and be like, what, do you really think that's going to happen here? Like, this girl's crazy, <laughs> you know? Um, and actually, yeah, I think talking to her made me realise that, um, yeah, there's no shame in that. Just, um, just yeah, re reach for the stars, I suppose. You've been listening to episode five, Institutional Eating with Joshna Maharaj. This is season one of Food Behind Bars, brought to you by Second Window. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more like it, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show was presented by me, Lucy Vincent, and produced by Second Window. The edit was put together by Taylor Fawcett. Coming up next week, episode six, Felix. Felix.